John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today I've got a special guest, Scott Ashton. He is the president and owner of Aerox. And uh, we'll do a little bit of an introduction for Aerox a little bit later. Um, he's also a uh, president of his own uh, EAA chapter. He's part of the Friends of Naples Airport. He's a CFII and a glider instructor. And he's also on the board of directors for PALS Skyhope. Um, and I think that all of those things can be uh, podcasts in themselves. So, Scott, I'm going to be uh, trying to get you to come back again. But for now, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, so it's it's always fun to have somebody who's really involved and invested in general aviation and just listening to some of the things that you participate in. Um, it, it's cool to, to hear that you have a passion for for GA and small airplanes and, and pilots in general. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been flying since I was 17 years old and I've been in the industry as an engineer and bought and sold airplanes and ran a management company and a helicopter charter company up in up in New York and been heavily involved in airport advocacy through the years. And uh, about three years ago, we had the chance to buy Aerox and uh, settled down here in Naples, Florida and and loving it and just bought a Mooney 201. So after about 20 years of being in flying clubs. I'm now an aircraft owner too. That's awesome. And you were telling me before we started that uh, you had a weekend of flying. So that's pretty cool. I did. Yeah. We, uh, we went up to Tampa to go visit my daughter and, you know, GA at its best and went up and, and saw her and, and had dinner. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. So I'd be remiss to uh, not say this publicly, um, and I know that we uh, thanked you in the past, but uh, you were a uh, supporter of the NAFI uh, giveaways that we had at AirVenture in the Professional Development Center, and and we just wanted to uh, take a moment to recognize that we appreciate it, and I know that uh, our members appreciate your support as well. Well, well thanks, John. I mean, that's that's part of the AROX ethos is, is we're very supportive of all of these efforts in the community and to uh, support scholarship winners and uh, raffles, where, wherever we can to support uh, organizations like NAFI that are doing great work on behalf of general aviation. So happy to do it. And uh, you can expect, uh, you can expect support this year again as well. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now we keep mentioning Aerox. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what is Aerox? What do you guys do and, and what's your mission? Aerox is oxygen made easy. So everything to do with aviation oxygen, uh, we're kind of unique in this space in that we've got um, a production program. So we sell installed oxygen systems for Diamond and Grobe and uh, the Leonardo 609 tilt rotor. So a wide variety of applications. Uh, we sell portables uh, through aircraft spruce and sporties. So if you're a you know, light GA pilot and you want a portable installed system, uh, we have a, a wide variety of options for you. We also have TSO-approved oxygen masks uh, that are certified for use up to 40,000 feet. Hmm. Uh, oxygen cylinders with uh, PMA oxygen cylinders for installed applications. We do EMS applications. So a pretty wide variety of applications all focused around uh, like uh, general aviation, business aviation, and, uh, and helicopters and EMS. 
Very cool. Yeah. I mean, oxygen is kind of an important thing. We uh, we use it every day. So making sure that you are are properly oxygenated while you're flying is is certainly a, a big deal. Our, our tagline is it's toxic to be hypoxic. So, uh, you know, hypo- uh, flying with hypoxia is, is equivalent to flying with any impairment. And uh, there's an easy fix for it. And that's to throw on a cannula and, and, and use some oxygen. Really, we teach, uh, you know, the science is to use uh, that we should be using oxygen above 8000 feet. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's kind of where all this comes from. You and I were, were speaking last week and and. Our main goal, and I think yours is as well, is to educate pilots and flight instructors to to understand not just how to do their jobs better, but maybe things that uh, that aren't covered in kind of the general ev- educational process. Um, and we started talking about uh, common misconceptions amongst the pilot community of oxygen in general, when you need it, when you don't need it, what you should be using when you do need it. Um, and that's kind of where the idea of this whole get together for the podcast episode came from. So let's talk a little bit about uh, common misconceptions for aviation oxygen. What, what are these things that you have come across? There, there are, there are a lot of misconceptions about oxygen. Um, and I'm also a fast team rep. And so I do safety seminars. I'm doing a safety seminar at Sun and Fun this year. I'm doing them at Oshkosh. And really it was kind of easy putting together the safety seminar because you stand at the booth and people come up and they ask you questions or they call into our customer service line and ask questions. And basically the presentation that I put together was just answering all of the questions that we get um, at, through all of our various sources. Um, so let's start off since we're all flight instructors or, or, or have an affinity towards flight instructors here listening to the podcast. Let's start off with 91 to 11, right? 90, which is, Oxygen is required anytime you're above 12,500 feet for more than 30 minutes or anytime that you're above 14,000 feet or, and you have to give it to your passengers. You have to make it available to your passengers uh, if you're above 15,000 feet. So that's what we teach in the regulations. That's what as flight instructors, we're teaching our students in order to pass our FAA written. Mm -hmm. So the law of primacy, right? We know, we know the law of primacy tells us that, what we learn first, we learn best. So student pilots learn that I don't need oxygen until I get to 12,500 feet, right? What did we? And so the misconception is that physio, that's based in some physiological basis, and it's not. If you go back to the Federal Register, all the way back to 2000 or 1970, uh, when this law was put on the books, there was a lot of discussion in the uh, in the public comment. The reason why you don't need oxygen uh, below twelve thousand five hundred feet by regulation is so that you can go west to east or east to west across the Rockies without having to get an oxygen system. Uh-huh. That's the only reason it's twelve five. It is not based on anything to do with physiology. Part one thirty five requires oxygen above uh, ten thousand feet, not twelve five. And EASA regulations are also 10,000 feet. So only, the only place in the world that where oxygen, the requirement for oxygen is 12,500 feet is our part 91 to 11. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So students learn that. And then as you progress through your private pilot career and, and, and um, through, through your flying career, you think, oh, well, I don't fly above 12,000 feet. Therefore, 
I don't need oxygen. And that is a huge misconception. And we show a chart in my seminars of blood oxygen concentration, uh, which is the measurement for that is so ubiquitous now. If you've got an iWatch or a, or a, uh, or a, a Fitbit or something, you, you can, it's very easy now to measure pulse, uh, pulse oximetry. And right around seven, between 7,500 and 9,000 feet, your pulse oximetry is going to cross that critical 90% threshold. And if you're in the hospital at 90%, they're putting you on oxygen. You're considered critical. And yet, you know, we can fly at 10,000 feet all day long and your pulse oximetry will be at that 90% level and you have to make decisions. You, you know, you've got to get ready for an approach. You're flying instruments. You may have to deal with an emergency. And, you know, by definition at, at 10,000 feet, you're probably flying impaired and the effects the effects accumulate over time. So if you're cruising up at that altitude and then you go to shoot the approach, you're fatigued, uh, you're kind of, you're wiped out and, you, and you've got this brain fog and now you're ready to shoot the approach and, and you're not as sharp as you should be. So that's probably the number one misconception that we deal with is pilots, you know, whenever I tell them that we're in aviation oxygen, they're like, Oh, you know, I fly or, you know, I, I don't fly above 10,000 or 12,500 feet or I live on the East Coast. You know, I'm not out in the mountains. Well, I'm down here in Florida and we're up at 10,000 feet as often as we can get because it's cooler up there. So when it's 95 degrees here, uh, you know, on, on the, uh, southwest Florida, we can go up to 10,000 feet and, you know, it's 50, 40 degrees and it's just it's fantastic. Uh, the air is smoother and you get a lot less traffic. So there's plenty of reasons to fly as high as possible, um, you know, between eight to 10,000 feet for general aviation pilots. So I would say that's probably the number one uh, misconception that we uh, that we deal with. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to educate pilots that, um, you know, that aviation oxygen is something that everyone should have, e even just a small cylinder uh with them uh, you know in the airplane just to uh um, you know just in case they've got to go up to altitude or at night if you're flying above five thousand feet so okay so i'm glad you mentioned that so you have you uh advocate above five thousand feet at night and above eight thousand feet during the day you should probably have yep. uh oxygen yep yeah, absolutely. O2 cool. okay. over eight feels great. And, uh, you know, uh, above 5,000 at night, you know, if you're an instructor and you're teaching your students night, night flying, you can take them up with a small oxygen system. And, um, you know, as, as you go up in altitude, your, your night vision will constrict and then you'll go on that, that oxygen and all the colors will really, really sharpen it and, and brighten it. It's really remarkable <laughs> when you do that. Um, and then also, you know, every everybody's hypoxia symptoms are different. Uh, so one of the other things that we encourage uh, every pilot to do is to go through the FAA training in the PRO, which is the Portable Reduced Oxygen Training Enclosure. And what they do is they mix nitrogen into the air to reduce the oxygen partial pressure. And, you know, they'll, they'll simulate an altitude. They won't, so, so it's not done by depressurizing the, the, the enclosure is what my point is. Mm -hmm. But um, what they'll do is they'll simulate an altitude of, say, 25,000 feet. And, you know, you've got to sit there with, you know, with a pad of paper doing math problems and, um, you know, and measuring your pulse oximetry. So as you're, as you're going up in altitude, 
um, you know, you can feel the effects of hypoxia and what it does to you because everybody's hypoxia symptoms are different and it affects everybody differently. Uh, so I encourage you to go do the do the pro, whether it's at Sun and Fun or Oshkosh. Uh, they also they change the regs so you can do the pro now with basic med, whereas oh. a few years ago you couldn't do it with basic med. You had to have a third class and now you can do it with basic med, which I think is fantastic on the FAA's part that they recognized that they needed to do that. Um, so I would get, you know, as soon as you get uh, to one of those shows, I would get on the list and, and do the pro. Uh, it, it's really, yeah, it's eye-opening, um, about what, how, how, how hypoxia affects, uh, affects you. It also will affect you differently from flight to flight. So it's affected by fatigue, um, um, hydration, uh, you know, uh, smoking and a number of different factors that may, that may change from flight to flight. So on one flight, you may be fine at 10,000 feet, another flight, you know, you're, you're kind of fatigued and, you know, you're suffering from hypoxia at 8,000 feet. Mm. You know, it's neat. I, I didn't know they brought those to the show. Um, I've never tried the that. Pro? We, yeah. Yeah. Our, uh, at the university I graduated from, they've got one of those pressure chambers that you can go into, but uh, I, I haven't seen the the nitrogen systems. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Cause it's inert. So it's, so it's easy to do and it's easy to reduce the partial pressure of oxygen. So it, it, it's an easy way to simulate altitude without depressurizing a, a chamber, which is really expensive and requires a lot of safety. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. A lot more safety own, equipment. My only issue is if they start asking us math problems, they may think I'm hypoxic before I even start. So <laughs> I've got to get a baseline first. <laughs> they're very easy. They're very easy math problems. And you'd be amazed at how hard they are to do when you're, uh, when you're, when you're, you know, severely hypoxic. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, again, when we're studying as as uh, private pilots, even up through uh, flight instructors, we talk about, OK, it's got to be aviation grade oxygen. And we know that you can't use the same kind of oxygen as you would for, say, welding or something like that. But what makes aviation oxygen specific? What makes it special? Why, why is it different? So all oxygen is produced the same way. All oxygen is produced from a now it's it's produced from a cryogenic, um, uh, uh, basically it's a cryogenic factory. So they freeze the air and they liquefy the oxygen and drain it off, and it's ultra pure oxygen. So all oxygen, whether it's welding, medical, or aviators breathing oxygen, are all all made the same way. Uh, so basically, the gas that you're getting is the same no matter no matter what. Um, uh, no matter what grade of oxygen you're uh, you're getting, there used to be this misconception that medical oxygen had moisture in it because the, the moisture, and I don't think the FAA realized this until a few years ago, the moisture is added at the point of delivery. So there's nebulizers at the point of delivery in the hospital in the doctor's office uh, where the moisture is added to the oxygen is not added to the oxygen at the factory. Uh, hmm. So it leaves the factory all the same. Uh, there's some different requirements with regard to testing the cleanliness of the cylinders that the various may, um, types of oxygen are put into. Uh, and then obviously there's, there's different testing requirements and certification requirements for the various grades of oxygen, but they're all made the same way and they all meet the most stringent uh, requirements. And in fact, the reality is that if, uh, if you know welding at all, if there's any welders, 
any impurities in the either the oxygen or the acetylene when you're welding will ruin the weld. So uh, when you think about all the crap that we breathe in as, as human beings, um, all of that would, would ruin the weld. So, you know, it's all produced the same. The uh, They're certified differently. And, you know, obviously we recommend using aviators breathing oxygen. But um, there's there's a lot of people who use welding oxygen or divers oxygen and um, with, with no ill effects. But if you're flying, you know, if you're part 135 or something like that, um, you know, your op specs are going to require uh, aviators breathing oxygen. And when, when we fill our cylinders, we, we only use aviators breathing oxygen. Sure. Yeah. I guess that in itself is sort of a misconception that, uh, that there are differences. So that's, that's, yeah, the biggest one is the, is about the medical oxygen having moisture put in it. Uh, that's that that's been a common misconception and it's never been true. And, you know, it was one of those things that got started a long time ago and, um, you know, it's, it's simply just not true. Um, yeah. the other, the other question we get asked a lot is how do you fill, uh, how do you fill your oxygen cylinder? And, you know, what we recommend, honestly, the easiest way to do it is to set up a cascade in your hangar. Um, you can rent cylinders from air gas or one of the, one of the industrial gas suppliers. They'll, they'll rent you or lease you. Uh, a couple of aviators breathing oxygen cylinders and you can set up a two cylinder cascade with a high cylinder and a low cylinder, a uh, low pressure and high pressure and fill your, uh, fill your oxygen cylinder for, you know, really for pennies on the dollar. It's, it's very economical, very inexpensive. Um, there's probably some uh, requirements, you know, uh, to keep it stored in your hangar, they should be chained up so they don't tip over or, or in a stand. So you want to follow all the safety protocols, but it's very easy to set up and very easy to fill either your cylinder or if you have an installed system, you can fill up your airplane right from that same, that same setup. Hmm. Uh, if you're traveling, it's a little bit more difficult and FBO will charge you uh, anywhere between 50 and $150, depending on what FBO you go to. Um, uh, you know, what, what I recommend to people is they find a maintenance shop on the field and, and go to a maintenance shop and see if they've got uh, an oxygen set up and have them do it. And you'll save a little bit of money. Yeah. And plan ahead. I, uh, I used to fly for 135 and, uh, you know, of course, one of our, our things during the initial walk around is checking the oxygen system and making sure that you're not low and more, I, Many times I have had to go back into the FBO and go, hey, is there a guy on the field that does this? And uh, out of experience, for those of you that uh, are doing this, check that early because sometimes that guy can be busy. It might take an hour or two before uh, before he's able to show up and, and refill your cylinder. But it's certainly worth doing, of course. Yep. Yeah, so, for sure. And uh, the other thing, you know, we uh, people ask about what size cylinder is. I always recommend getting the largest cylinder you can reasonably fit in your airplane uh, for exactly that reason. It just gives you more endurance. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other misconceptions that came up during our initial conversation, and, and frankly, I didn't even know that this was a thing, but I sort of understand it now that I have done a little bit of research on my own end. Apparently there's a misconception amongst pilots that you can bring sort of oxygen cans, the, the isn't it the kind of thing that people use when they're like hungover or something um yeah but you can yeah, use these so oxygen get, cans 
Yeah, we get asked about that a lot at, at our at our booth when we're at the shows, you know, that they use these little one one breath oxygen cans. And, you know, as someone who, who flies a lot and, and it flies at high altitude, I, I just don't think they're effective. Um, you know, part of, for a number of reasons, we have a really interesting blog post about it, five reasons why oxygen in a can is a camp for pilots. And, um, you know, I mean, I use the analogy, it's like trying to trying to fly your airplane with, you know, your, your, with your mags on only one second at a time. So you take a breath of oxygen from the from the can. And, uh, you know, in, in two or three seconds, the effects are the effects are gone. And you really need it. You know, you really need it on a continuing basis. If you're up at altitude, uh, the effects come quickly and then but they also go away quickly um and you can't you can't you don't know how much you have left it's it's much more difficult to use because you've got to hold it up to your face when you're uh, when you're using it so you know i mean i guess if you're climbing a mountain or something and you need a you need a little uh, a little hit or something like that you know it's fine but when you're it's not it's definitely not a substitute for either a portable or an installed oxygen system um, and they're you know they're they're little difficult to transport because they're considered hazmat so you can't ship them you you can't ship them very easily um so there's just there's just a uh, a number of difficulties with them and they're not really to me they're not really appropriate for use for uh, for aviation needs yeah like i said i i wasn't even familiar with what these were when you originally (laughs) mentioned it it it, it literally like you said it's an oxygen in a can and and people just breathe it in and then it's gone uh, what what are these for to begin with they're well they're they're uh, i guess they sell in more much more into the consumer market so you know i guess they sell into like football teams and runners and, and you know much more general consumer type uh markets where you know you may you, you're at sea level but you may need a little a little hit of oxygen to oh, kind of okay. refresh your brain or something. They're really not meant for extended use. You can't, because it's, you know, it's a gas, you really can't tell how much is in there. So, you know, if yeah. you're using it up at altitude and you're, you know, you're taking a hit of it every, every few minutes, you could run out and, and not even know it. You can't refill them. And, uh, you know, like I said, they're, they're hard to use because you have to hold it up to your face. So you're, you're trying to brief an approach or something and fly the airplane and, and manage, you know, manage everything else. And, you know, now you've got to manage this as well. So, um, you know, it's just it, to, to me, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's interesting. It's a little niche thing, but it's definitely not a substitute if you're flying, if you're flying, you know, with any kind of regularity. You're much better off with uh, with a small portable oxygen system, just keeping it in your flight bag rather than, uh, you know, this uh, this O2 in a can. <laughs> yeah, you know, if there's one thing that aviation is is uh, not kind to, it's shortcuts, and yeah. uh, that's kind of what this feels like. I mean, I I really enjoyed your blog post, and as you said, it's five reasons why oxygen in a can is a can't for pilots, which I love the title. Um, you know, and you mentioned in already the idea that, hey, you don't know how much you have left. You you don't know how much you're actually absorbing um, what happens when you run out because it is a short burst of of oxygen. And then you even say here that, uh, you know, there's a certain percentage of it that isn't even oxygen to begin with. So it's 
it's all of those things and more, including, I'm sure, lack of regulation and, and its intended use not being for, for airplanes, why this is this whole thing is a, is a bad idea. Um, so, yeah, I encourage anybody to uh, to go on the Aerox website and it's aerox.com and check out some of these other blog posts because there's some really good stuff in here for educational materials for instructors looking to to show this to students. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, I, you know, um, being an instructor myself, well, my my the presentations that I do are really geared with that instructor mindset, you know, in, in mind. So, uh, one of the one of the presentations I did were was all of the things that your instructor didn't teach you about using aviation oxygen. Um, I, I know, actually, through all of my flight training, uh, the use of oxygen, other than learning the regulations, the use of oxygen never came up and it was always um, like this mysterious thing about what kind of connectors do I use and how, where do I, you know, like where, where do I get filled? And, you know, so we've tried to answer as many of those questions as possible and to take some of that mystery out of, um, uh, out of using, buying, uh, refilling your aviation oxygen system, no matter whose system you use, whether it's ours or mountain highs or anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, to me to us. It's uh, you know it's important that you use the system uh, and, uh, and and get the best benefit out of it because it is a safety enhancement. So if somebody's looking to kind of get into something like this, let's say they own their own airplane, and they're like, "Hey, I fly above eight thousand all the time." Um, what does it take to get started on a system? What's a what's kind of a basic entry level um, place? Yeah, we can- sell. You know, we we sell. Um, one, two, four, and six-place systems. So depending on what size airplane you have or, or how many users you have, you know, you can you can pick the number of users that you have. Uh, then uh, you pick your cylinder size, and there's you know, there, there are letters. There. So there's A, C, D, uh, E, and M. And it goes anywhere from nine cubic feet up to 24 cubic feet. And we have a chart, an endurance chart, that tells you how many – um, how many hours of use you get uh, at, at a given altitude versus c- cylinder size. So, um, you know, like an A cylinder at 10,000 feet, you know, may last 12 hours. Uh, you can get an E cylinder at that same, same, um, uh, same altitude that'll last 45 hours, say. So, you know, you can kind of, you can pick the cylinder size that makes the most sense for you. And then there's a number of options. We just came out with a conserving boom cannula uh, called the Boomula, and that uh, that mounts to your headset. With a, it's got a special Bose A20 mount, and it also has a conserving pendant. And ours is the only one that has that, so you can use it with any installed or portable oxygen system, and you'll get the benefit of that conserving fi- uh, feature. Um, and then the final the, the final thing is a pulse oximeter. Every pilot should have a pulse oximeter in their flight bag. You know, they're so ubiquitous now um, and they're, they're pretty inexpensive. We sell them at the trade shows and you can buy them on sporties or, or craft spruce and um, you know, really, you know, use that to, to understand what your body's doing. It's like an engine monitor for your, for your body. And um, you know, if you get down below that, you know, that 90, 92 mark, you know, you either descend or you should be throwing your, your, um, your uh, oxygen on. Hmm. As far as the, the 
oxygen level in your blood degrading. I mean, I know we talked a little bit about the whole 12, five thing and the half an hour mm-hmm. thing is, is where did they come up with the half an hour? Is that, is there any science behind that? Is, should somebody be using a different number? Do you think? Well, you know, I use it as soon as I cross through across 8,000, I can feel it right away. I, so I throw it on, you know, again, that half hour thing was really, yeah, that all really came out of being able to cross the, you know, cross the country um, without having an oxygen system on. So, you know, the, the effects do accumulate over time. So if you if you're at that 8,000 feet, you know, you're just going up because New York, you know, New York ATC puts you up at 7,000 crossing, uh, crossing the, um, the class Bravo all the time if you're VFR. So if you're up there for 30 minutes, it's, you know, you're probably going to be OK because you're coming back down. But if you're going to be cruising at that altitude uh, for any extended period of time, you know, I, I would I would definitely be throwing the oxygen on. And again, measure your pulse oximetry. You know, you're, there's plenty of YouTube videos and we've done some with Aviation Consumer and a couple of others uh, that show, you know, that that 8000 foot mark is uh, is really critical. It, it, it's pretty dramatic how. Uh, how that curve crosses between eight, eight to ten thousand feet, mm-hmm. not twelve five. By twelve <laughs> right. five, you're in the mid eight. By twelve five, you're in the mid eighties. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I I just get this uh, picture in my head of somebody, you know, trying to cross the Rockies in a in an old Piper, just measuring the time <laughs> of how long it took him to get, you know, across yeah. the, the tallest peak. Up, oh, that's got to be it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, it also. It, it, it also depends on your, you know, your level of adaptation to it too. So, so people, you know, we, we get people telling us, well, I live in the East coast. So, you know, I don't, I don't need an oxygen system. Well, the reality is, you know, being down here in Florida at sea level, I need it more than anybody because when I go up to altitude, I have zero tolerance for, for altitude. Um, If you live out, you, you know, if you are in the mountains or you live out in the Rockies, at least you've built up a tolerance, you know, 5,000, 6,000 feet. You know, so you've been exposed to it. Your body's, your body's, um, um, you know, kind of acclimatized to it. As an East Coaster, as a sea, as someone at sea level, you're, you know, my body is not not acclimatized to high altitude at all. So again, you know, a pretty common misconception. It's it's actually the reverse. If you live out in the West Coast or out in the Rockies. Uh, yeah, you need it because you're going up to higher altitudes, but your body's also acclimatized to it a little bit better than than me here at uh, at four feet or five feet uh, at our shop in Bonita Springs right now. Um, and like I said, I'm up at altitude all the time. So huh. yeah, that's that's really interesting. So. I think that there's a lot, again, there's a lot we can cover and we're not going to do it all today. Um, but, uh, I think we've got enough time for maybe one more misconception. If you can think of one, um, what, uh, what else do people you ask? Know, the, the only real misconception is, you know, there, and there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of small, you know, small misconceptions, but the general one is that it's complicated. Um, you know, it's it's not complicated. That you can get a kit, whether it's from us or, or any of the other providers, comes with everything you need. Um, you know, you you put it together, you put the cannulas on or the mask, and you use it. It's not it's not that complicated. 
Um, you know, you follow the instructions and it's, it's very easy to use. It's small, it's lightweight. Um, so we, you know, we just, we encourage, we encourage everybody to have at least a small portable oxygen system on board. Uh, it doesn't take up a lot of weight. It doesn't take up a lot of space and it's not hard to use. So, um, you know, that's, that's really the other big misconception is that it's somehow this mysterious thing that, um, you know, only only the big boys use, or or only only someone with a with a high performance airplane can use. Hey, you know, if you're flying a 172, you know, ATC can put you up at eight just like that. Uh, and you know, it's throw it on, and you'll feel so much better. I can't tell you how many long distance cross country flights I've done at 10,000 feet, where I go home and just completely wiped out, and I sleep for hours. You know, when you when you're on oxygen, you land, and you just you feel great. Um, and that's the other, that's the other big thing is after the flight, you just feel so much better after, uh, after uh, flying using oxygen compared to not using it. Well, as with so much in aviation, it's better to have it and not need it than, uh, need it and not have it. Yep. Yep. For sure. So, all right. Well, um, I think that, uh, certainly is some great information for our listeners. And again, listeners, if you're, you're interested, do your research. Um, there's so much out there beyond what we teach for the check rides. And, um, again, the Aerox website has a lot of good information. I'm sure there's some other good information out there as well. Um, but, uh, Scott, I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing these ideas with us today. And, and again, I hope you come back and, and maybe share us some more. Sure thing, John. And thanks for uh, everything that NAFI's doing for the flight instructor and general aviation community. We appreciate it. Fantastic. And remember, airox.com. 